Welcome to For the Love of Jewelers, a podcast brought to you by Rio Grande Jewelry Supply and hosted by yours truly, Courtney Gray. Now in our third season, we celebrate the unconditional strength driven by our passion to create and the motivating factors that enable us to adapt. We recognize the relevance and resilience of the jewelry industry through inspirational stories that challenge and honor its makers. Our journey, although unchartered, is one we are on together. Let's pause, share, and discover the variety of silver linings gained from each personal story of innovation and determination. Master goldsmith and jewelry design junkie, Tony Rodriguez is currently the Vice President of Product Development for William Henry and an award-winning jewelry designer. He was born and raised in Hinsdale, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago to Portuguese immigrant parents, one an artist and the other an engineer. After five years of honing his skills, Tony continued his career as the Midwest Regional Manager of Jewelry Repair and Design for Nordstrom Department Store. He spent four years with them overseeing the repair shop, working with merchandising on Nordstrom private label, his own label designs, and custom jewelry. Tony left Nordstrom to open his own design studio gallery. In that same year, he became an early adopter of CAD CAM, which forever changed his approach to design and the manufacturing of fine jewelry. Tony went on to become the design director of Paragon Lake, now called Jimbara. In 2013, Tony and Tomas Wittelsbach joined the William Henry team and helped bring them into the world of jewelry. Since that time, Tony has expanded his role to designing, prototyping, and creating the production pipeline for William Henry products. Alongside Tomas Wittelsbach, Eric Keller, and Henry Williams, Tony co-founded ZBrush Jewelry Workshop, an online educational platform where members can take an idea from concept to production. Let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to For the Love of Jewelers. Today we have Tony Rodriguez with us. Hey Tony, welcome. Hey there. Glad Tony to is a vice president of product development of William Henry Jewelry and co-founder of ZBrush Jewelry Workshop. Um, and I would say that's only the tip of the iceberg. I'm excited to have Tony with us today to share um, all of his history and just his jewelry journey in general is, is fascinating. Um, we'll try to keep this one to an hour, but I don't know. <laughs> once, <laughs> once we get talking, Tony, we'll see. Um, tell us like the first the first experience with jewelry and what pulled you to, to this particular industry? Well, so actually I, so I grew up in the Midwest, um, first generation American. My parents are from Portugal. My mom was a ceramic artist and my dad uh, was an entrepreneur. And so I was exposed to art, uh, from the earliest times. And then, but I was, a kind of a, math prodigy and got pushed to math science all through grade school and high school. High school specifically was, I went to an all guys Catholic boarding military school. They didn't uh, believe really in art as a, a, <laughs> a benefit to you as, as far as getting a job. And so when I got to college, um, it was interesting. My, I was in my dorm room and I looked down on the floor and there was, it was a broken floor tile. At the time, this is the early 1980s, I was dating a girl who was worked for Saks Fifth Avenue, and she was hardcore into, we, were, we went to punk, punk clubs and new wave stuff, and, and I these sort of triangular uh, pieces, and I started playing with them in, in different juxtapositions, and then I got out a big pen and 
drilled some holes through them in a notebook and broke, you know, the, the spiral notebook made jump rings out of that and created this singular earring, which then I got a, a post and, and she started wearing this out to clubs and actually was offered at one point $1,500 from somebody in a club for this earring. And that was kind of when I went, oh, that's interesting. A couple of years later, on a um, uh, bicycle trip across country, we were, my friends had an accident, wiped out, and this truck almost hit us, and these four girls in this car spun their car around and stopped. And my friend who's swearing and yelling about his bike and these girls, I'm like, oh, hey, girls, what are you up to? And they were on their way to a jewelry party. And that idea stuck in my head, so... Uh, later on as an independent, as a, you know, when I started actually making jewelry, which came after, after finishing college with a philosophy degree, uh, I traveled around Europe for, a, for an entire summer and then uh, realized I wanted to focus on art. And I started doing large scale wood sculptures and making um, and doing furniture pieces where I would find um, half broken furniture uh, and then take it, refinish that, and then design the rest of it in a more contemporary style. Um, and then one day in the adjacent studio, uh, a girl came in and started talking about her studio. And I walked over and it was jewelry. And I went, oh, this is really interesting. I can stop trying to get grants and sell these large things. And this makes perfect sense. Sculpture that's miniature and saleable. And I could make a living. So those are kind and there, of my, and, and yeah. so it began. Yeah. <laughs> I love the punk rock earrings that from the binder, like really, Tony. So you've been designing since <laughs> yeah, just naturally from I mean when when age. I was at, when I was in high school, it was another kind of weird story. I had a friend who he was in driver's ed and there was a this crayon drawing of this weird amalgamation of some kind of like Quetzalcoatl bird and something else. And it really freaked him out. And he brought it back to our dorm room. And uh, to calm him down, I took coat hangers and made a bird cage and a perch. And we locked this cartoon drawing in a cage. So he felt, well, he felt better. <laughs> so, but um, we used to, you know, there were four of us in our dorm room and we would engineer things with the light switch. So I, I've always been sort of, the engineering design side, you know, comes out of the math, but then uh, that left-right brain has always been something that I've been able to jump back and forth to uh, pretty easily. Business design. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of guided me through uh, through my careers and, and landed me different jobs because of my ability to communicate with uh, both communities. You know, uh, there are people who are like artists artists drive me nuts, you know, and it's like the real business people. Uh, right. So if you can, if you can manage both worlds, it's a benefit. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a, a strength, right? I would kind of a rare, a rare strength. Um, you know, you're, you're lucky. I so it's, lucky. I mean, it's gotten you all kinds of experience uh, from what was it uh, designing for, <clears throat> excuse me, for Nordstrom. Um, now William Henry, you've been with William Henry for nine years. Yeah, nine years. When I first started, I was doing primarily hand fabrication, uh, a bit of casting, got into 
there was a, a great professor at this, uh, this little junior college that I started making jewelry at. He didn't know a tremendous about making jewelry, but he just had this, this enthusiasm, this excitement about anything you did and made and it, and it bolstered your confidence in uh, trying different things and experimenting. And because there was no instruction at the time, I think the only book I had was one from Harold O'Connor, maybe Tim McCrites. It was just a lot of trial and error. And we got access to the studio as long as you volunteered. So you could go in 24 hours a day. And I just immersed myself. I was doing every day, probably 12 to 16 hours in the studio, just playing and, and making stuff and rather quickly got into probably about took me about three months and I got into some galleries in the Chicago suburbs and in Chicago and started making some, some money, which was nice. And then there was, uh, from that professor, he had a former student who he, he recommended me to. And I reluctantly went and went to this jewelry store. Reluctantly. <laughs> I didn't, I really wasn't ready to have a, a job and do that, but it turned out to be a great experience. The man who I worked with for five years, it was really a very low paying. I was getting, I got paid four twenty five an hour when I, I could get six bucks at the bagel place, you know? Right. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, so that, uh, was, and free bagels. Yeah. Yeah. But that was, I got to carve waxes, cast, hand fabricate, uh, set stones, you know, and, and in five years I had, I had garnered enough knowledge to really um, be good enough to get hired by Nordstrom to run their their jewelry repair for the Midwest, which was when I left, I think we were at 12 or 13 stores and doing custom designs for both the fine and fashion and then for their high-end customers doing one-offs. So that was great training along with all the repair and things, those situations. Repair is one of the best ways to learn. Anybody that scoffs doing repairs doesn't want to do them. I think you're missing opportunities. To learn. To learn. Yeah. It is a bit scary when somebody gives you something very expensive and, and there's a potential to screw it up, but... But the, the, what you'll gain from that experience is, is priceless. Well, dissecting something, taking it apart, putting it back together, it's a whole different level of learning. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Well, that's quite a training. I mean, just to walk right into Nordstrom uh, repair, <laughs> that's, that's pretty, I think the, for a lot of us, that would be like, wow, Tony, what are you doing to, what do you attribute that to, you know? Um I think it was just the the type of work that I had been doing and the volume of it uh, gave me the skill set. I mean, there was when Nordstrom, when that job was supposed to start, they had some issues, and I found myself in November and not having a job going to start up. And I took a job for three months in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin. I would commute. Um, had two little two little children at home. I left my wife there. I'm like. I have the easy part. I just have to go and work. But they, I made a deal with them that I would take, we would split everything a third. Third for them, a third for the shop, and a third for me. And I was able to 50, 60 ring sizings a day, doing, setting, you know, 10 to 15 stones, carving a wax, you know, all these things every day for, for except for on uh, Sundays. And I made almost 60,000 in three months, you know, and this is 25, 30 years ago. It was real money, uh, life-changing money. 
And then my job at Nordstrom started and it was, so that was a good warm up going into that along with my previous experience. So, and Nordstrom, we would get 10, 12 stores and up to 60 people from each store on a daily basis. So it, it, um, it came in handy to have some computer background and, and a little bit of programming. And I set up databases to track everything. Initially, they wanted it all tracked in a, in a notebook on, on paper. Oh, dear. It was yeah. insane. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. I guess that's part of, too, why you ended up working on the website for saying Paragon Lake, yeah. now Jim Vara, right? Yeah. So when um, the next generation of Nordstrom boys took over, they eliminated customer service, a bunch of the customer service departments, and we were considered customer service. The good thing was they gave me a uh, huge payoff. After Nordstrom, I had started my own um, jewelry store called The Hidden Gem, which was a clever name my my wife came up with. Uh, and that was around 1999, 2000. After a brief period, I came across, through a friend, Gem Vision and Matrix. And uh, after the, in the first, so it was in 2000, I... I bought Matrix and a and a Revo mill, and that was my first employee, uh, and got into doing CAD, and that that for me um, was life changing in terms of I had been carving I'd I'd be at work all day and then at the end of the the workday I'd carve waxes and then set them up and vest and and I was doing this and it was killing me and I could and now I could. I could do my design, throw it in the mill, mm. and go home. It yeah. was, yeah, it was huge, life changing. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and then 2008 happened. I decided I would go to different events, and was always kind of the wallflower. 2008, I could I sensed a shift before it really happened, uh, and decided to really hunker down on my CAD skills and focus there. The same time. I was, um, my, my marriage was ending. So I was looking for something, you know, to energize myself. And I went to an event and with the, with the idea that I was going to say, instead of going, Oh, I love my job and everything's great. I was going to go in and say, no, here's what I am. Here's what I can do. And literally at a, uh, I met somebody from who was the CEO founder of Paragon Lake. When they started, they were they wanted to take somebody's sketch, pencil sketch, to CAD design in 24 hours and then fulfillment within a few days. And they got, wow. they were connected with a, a company in LA and they got funding initially 500,000 and then, and then 7 million. Um, and then it, ultimately they got, I think it was 50 something million. So wow. I was brought in to, they had shifted what how they wanted to do, and I was brought in as the design director to sort of corral designers into putting their designs up on uh, a site as opposed to generating them for each client. They wanted to have a virtual display case, was what mm-hmm. they called it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a challenge. Uh, people were, the jewelry industry, especially at that time, there's so many people who still didn't want to share their knowledge and felt like somebody was going to steal their design. They overvalued their product is what they did. And they lost out because the people who did sign on made really good money through that. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I did that for three years. Basically, the idea was to take them from, from B to B to B to C and get their next funding. When I, when I left Paragon Lake, I spent the next three years um, basically doing stuff on my own, traveling around the country, visiting artists and jewelers and, and hanging out and, and trying to figure out where I wanted to focus my skills. I did, I was working on stuff at home. I had a home studio and I, but I wasn't trying to sell it. I would, I would do some contract CAD for people to keep things going, but I was, you know, picked up hand engraving and another, you know, worked on another skill set. The most fun is when we would have uh, in store in Chicago. I was living in Chicago at the time, and I would just uh, I would throw an annual party and invite, you know, thirty or forty jewelry artists. And I was I miss those days. And supposedly in store is coming back. So yay, we'll see. Oh, that'll be so amazing. Yeah. Well, I think that's important. You know, getting out and in, in the community and getting face to face with everybody. I know you do quite a bit of that still, uh, traveling. Well, I try now, to, that, now that we can. Yeah. yeah. I try to intersect with jewelers, stores, uh, trade shows, kind of get the feel the pulse of what's going on in the, in the world. After doing that for three years, Tomas Wittelsbach, who's dear friend, he and I spent a lot of time together hanging out, and he was always complaining nobody could produce his jewelry. And there was a competition from the Palladium Alliance uh, where they would give you three ounces. They'd pay for three ounces of Palladium if you were selected of one of 100 pieces they chose. I had a piece chosen. um, And at the time, he was working for Green Lake Jewelry Works with Jim Tuttle up in Seattle. They had submitted, I think, I think it was 40 designs from the whole team, and 10 of them were Tomas's. And seven of his were selected in 20 of theirs total. Wow. And I jokingly said, oh, Jim, I'll come out and give you a hand. And he's like, would you? And, <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I flew out and hung out with and worked with his team there and did some CAD for them, but then kind of orchestrated a bunch of the, the pieces. And there was a particular one, this Palladium watch that, um, that I only had. We had it cast... Um, uh, Teresa cast the palladium for us, but um, I had to build and create the the class, the lobster, and and do the crystal, and so I had about five days to do that. And out of that, uh, Tomas had been trying to work with Matt Conable at um, at William Henry on a project, uh, and we had stopped by to to see the studio in in Oregon. And with the idea of, we were talking about doing a sort of a group project where I would, some of my great artist friends, we would do like, each do a little bit of work on something and and document it and then auction it off. Hmm. And Matt was like, that's great. I'd love to invest in that. But you seem to be the missing link to getting his work into the real world. And that was when we decided to work with each other. Yeah. You you mean you and Tomas or Tomas, you and William? Yeah. Me, Tomas, and William Henry. William Henry. Yeah. Yeah, you guys, Tomas, actually, I had the uh, privilege of interviewing him in season one of this yeah. podcast. So look back and you can hear from Tomas. Yeah, I think, I think that's when I met you both, I think, together. Yeah, traveling. 
Well, what a cool history. It's so interesting how to hear how it all kind of played out for you and uh, continues to. It's like just show up and and meet people basically and you know, continue to grow your skills and um things kind of tend to to fit together, you know, when the timing is right. Yeah, I think that, you know, for me it's like I've been doing this a long time and when I started it um when I started designing stuff, the stuff I would design was ridiculous. I it couldn't <laughs> be made. I think and that's a common you just start drawing things and, and you get you know, you're very wishful, but you realize quickly that the more you expand your skill set, you don't need to start dreaming about stuff. You can target those skills to what you can make. And the more skills you have, uh, the broader um, and the more options you have and what you can produce. So, um, Yeah, and you picked up CAD. You were an early, early adopter of CAD. Yeah. And that was kind of the beginning there for the like, jewelry trade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At, when that sim- I went to Gem Vision's first symposium in Chicago, and there were like 50 of us there. You know, wow. small. it was a very small community. It was a little, you know, the people had signed on. There was more than that. But I, there was a point and it wasn't that many years later where there were maybe when you're when you're talking about 2005 to 2008, maybe there were 50 competent jewelry CAD people in the country. If not, mm-hmm. you know, it was now there are there are tons and and there's different softwares available uh, that's developed. And and now most of my work, and and Tomas too, we work in um, ZBrush, which is digital clay. Um, it's, you know, from having carved waxes for 15 years and hand carving that and being a jeweler, that transition was fairly easy for me. Um, and also being involved with software and programs, um, ZBrush is a little uh, uh, intimidating when you first open the interface, but there are ways around that and minimizing the the pain of learning. Uh, <laughs> the learning curve, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was it was used primarily. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, in movie production. I know Tomas talked about working on Batman and yeah. um, different you know different movies that require a lot of that sculptural kind it, of background it, it started as a two and a half d program and then once it developed into three it 3d it it was primarily used for animation for gaming for um for film for special effects uh all that it wasn't until it was probably around that that same time probably around 2008 seven eight somewhere in there where people were actually able to make real world objects, uh, things like CNC milling and 3d printers had been around for a period. They weren't affordable. Uh, but, uh, the first, the first jewelry object, uh, Tomas likes to take credit for that, uh, in around 2008 where he, he had, you know, through a variety, you know, using multiple softwares was able to get a, an STL where he could he'd do it on his uh, Revo mill. Since then, the software has only gotten better. Uh, now, now you don't need any other software. You could, you could literally sketch, sculpt, and take to production uh, right out of ZBrush. It's very There's nice. like a 2022 update, right? Is it updated yeah, every they, year? They've been updating. It's ZBrush is now 20 years old. 
Okay. So, but um, it uh, it gets updated fairly regularly. Uh, they're constantly adding new features, and then uh, they're very open to even though jewelry is not their biggest source of income. Uh, we developed relationships with them, Tomas, for a long time, and and also uh, one of my other business partners, Eric Keller. Uh, so from the education side, Tomas, Eric Keller, Henry Williams, and myself, we founded Zebra's Jewelry Workshop, uh, an educational platform online to to teach uh, jewelry focused uh, with the use of ZBrush. So the company Pixelogic that makes ZBrush has always been uh, very open to taking uh, guidance from us and adding features. And then whenever new features come out, we do videos that target how that can apply to jewelry. So amazing, exciting yeah. times. That is very exciting. And it's still, I just love seeing that it's still growing. You know, it's going to be new features added probably moving forward. I'm sure. So, Oh yeah. yeah. It's, there's always requests for new stuff and it, and we're happy that they accommodate, but uh, the applications as they keep growing and adding these features, it just opens up so much more CAD. When, uh, when I started doing CAD it, for a lot of people, it was very clunky, blocky, you know, they're like, Oh, that's a CAD model. Luckily for me, I was able to very early on figure out ways to make them look more organic. I did a lot of stuff with, you know, flows on curves that, that, um, that allowed me to produce stuff that didn't look so CAD. Uh, and now that ZBrush, ZBrush is opening up so much more organic sculpting, although you can do hard model surfacing in it very easily and have that more, say, an Art Deco, you know, blocky looking piece, uh, more geometric. Um, but the the ability to add accents and detail now um, just opens up so much more in terms of design possibilities. Yeah, I remember when it was first being talked about more in the industry, and it was it seemed like it was more of a sculptural a sculptural approach. Um, but you're saying you can do both, you know? It's. Uh, I think the the thing is understanding how um, the models actually are built. Uh, so a lot of people would see tutorials, and they were based on film or animation or gaming and that's the exact opposite way you want to build a model for jewelry because they're so that's and once you realize that and understand that it and we've tried to make that um more open to people and, and educate them that way so it's but once you get there it's like oh this makes so much more sense and i can actually easily do this and the and everything has gotten with the tools has made that process easier too. So nice. Well, what would you say to, to those of us who maybe don't have a strength that like you do, as far as the math and the, the, you know, computer background, uh, is it something that is attainable for? Oh yeah. Um, so they, uh, Pixelogic offers sort of a s stripped down versions. Uh, they've got, I can't remember the name of it. They've got, uh, but they have, a. They have a one that's it's really easy to get into kind of uh, the basic intro. There's a, there's a basic and they do f free versions where it's uh, stripping down the interface to just less tools. You can. If you know and understand a handful of commands 
and a few brushes and sit down. The, the hardest part for most people is sitting down and figuring out how to work with a Wacom pen and the, and making things move around in scale. Mm. But literally if somebody explains that to you, which we do uh, very succinctly in some of our videos uh, and you take about 10 minutes of practice, you will get it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from there, you know, having an understanding of a handful of tools, uh, you can start playing in it. So, um, at, uh, they did, ZBrush does a summit every year. At least they, they used to do it live in LA. Um, and there'd be about 2000 people there from all over the world. These artists would come in. Uh, and we brought actually some people from Rio Grande, uh, to that and who had no design CAD and, and sat them down and it was like, had them playing with ZBrush and they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is a game changer. This is, um, this is something totally unique. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's so many things uh, on YouTube and people having classes and there's all these techniques. And the thing that, that always disappoints me, you'll see, a select few that really sort of rise and look unique, but then you sort of see this, okay, somebody's taught a technique and everything starts to look that way. And that was the way CAD started at first. Right. But I think with a program like ZBrush, it's really, it's only limited by your imagination. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's very painterly the yeah. design. I mean, the things that Tomas, for example, my gosh, I mean, yeah. really intricate just amazing sculptural work is there a good source we can send people to go see like what's possible with zbrush um i mean i know they have the website of course but like who whose work should we look at you know to kind of get a feel for what's possible so eric keller who to me he's a great example of so eric literally wrote the the first book on maya and zbrush and he teaches uh, at Noman uh, School, um, and he took our class that we had before we did the workshop, and um, he adopted our methodology and our workflow through from what Tomasa had developed. And Eric uh, does hyper realistic things for film and medical schools. Uh, he does. Uh, he loves entomology. He loves creatures, and he does these amazing real things and now he's been taking his pieces uh and like different insects uh he just did the other day he showed me a model of a of a horny toad that he's turned into a ring uh and it's like so it's taking this entire this passion of his from these other things and turning it into into jewelry and his stuff is is amazing considering i mean he's a highly skilled zbrush artist but it's his development as a into jewelry design is really cool to see and watch uh, transitioning. Um, Tomas's work, obviously, um, if you look at uh, the stuff from that I do for William Henry, that's that's all been done in ZBrush. Okay. Um, yeah. And um, there's um, there's a thing called ArtStation. I had to think about that for a second. Where there's uh, or or a really good is through Pixelogic's website. Uh, they have um, they have a ZBrush gallery, um, mm. 
<clears throat> that um, people can peruse, but that's going to be a mix of, of all sorts of stuff. Applications. Uh, yeah. yeah. A lot of different applications, but it really opens up your, your mind as to what's possible. Very cool. I love hearing, hearing about what's possible with this and excited to see as it moves into the future. Um, let's talk a little bit, uh, Tony, about uh, your work with William Henry that you're doing. And um, you've been product, product manager all the way to VP of product uh, development, right, over the last nine years, you mentioned? Yeah, so it's been nine years. I was I was brought in to, with Tomas and I came in as a team, um, as I was hired as the the v, vice president of production, so overseeing production, and um, initially uh, we had uh, Matt Conable who started the company and was a knife designer, and and Tomas's design work really appealed to him, but they're really very quite different. We were brought in and we started producing jewelry designs that were very matte designs and were very Tomas and trying to blend and make that work. Uh, and from my side, it was just mainly uh, guiding because Tomas was uh, primarily a sculptor at that point and coming out, of, coming out of sculpture and had transitioned into doing some jewelry stuff. So he and I worked closely to, so his, his pieces were more suited towards jewelry production. Function meets sculpture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, and we came up with uh, some pretty cool stuff. I kind of I love what I love about William Henry is it's it seems as though the brand is more directed towards men. Um, I mean, I see both, but the the wording and the brand <clears throat> seem seemed like it's you know very kind of masculine, which is unusual, you know, for for a jewelry company to target that. So at that point in time, nine years ago, uh, one of the reasons I was willing to come and do this was that we were going to be focused more on. Uh, as a men's brand, and that I saw the opportunities, and I had been designing primarily. I had done a, I had done a lot of men's jewelry over the years, but ninety percent or more was for women. A ton of engagement rings, a lot of fashion stuff, tons of earrings. You know, just so to to get into something that was totally different, and where I saw a huge opportunity for growth. When my kids were little. They started wearing like you'd go on vacation and they'd start wearing bracelets and things that, you know, they'd get up at some tourist place. And I started seeing that transition as men, young guys were wearing more stuff. And then as they were getting older, they it was like the, the comfort level uh, had changed, which was was a signal signal to me to, that this was an opportunity for for huge growth um, and that an opportunity to do something different. What I realized in the in the end that, that men's jewelry for me is actually harder to design than women's jewelry. Women are so much more open to what they'll they'll wear on their body. You know, they'll they they're not repressed. They're they're just they're like, oh, this is cool. This I love this form, and you know, it's this this complements. Uh, what I'm wearing or my hair or, uh, and I'm comfortable with that. And men have always, they struggle with that a little bit more for myself, for my parents being from Europe, I grew up having from the earliest days, having gold cross, having, uh, my grandparents gave me uh, name, sterling silver 
name bracelets and I grew up having jewelry and wearing it. So for me, I was like, oh, it's about time that uh, I can start doing this more across the board for for men. So that is challenging, though, to come up with something that's, you know, almost like an everyday piece that they can wear all the time and feel, you know, comfortable in. Um, I mean, most men I've worked with don't even want to wear a wedding ring. It's just, you know, not used to jewelry. (laughs) Well, and you you get a lot of people who just equate. It's like, oh, it's either got to be. It's either got to be rocket roll or some more traditional thing that, you know, so it got pigeonholed quite a bit. For us, uh, we we have, uh, my biggest challenge is, is having the initial jewelry was from two different designers has been trying to keep the, the brand looking like William Henry, but coming to a happy medium so that our customers that like both sides of that meet in the middle and, uh, and are, you know, we can continually grow. Um, Keep coming yeah. back. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's fascinating to me to hear, you know, I was thinking about you, Tony, and meeting with you today. And how do you stay ahead of that? Like, you seem to have a really good intuition for industry and how it's going to shift and, you know, potentially move and open up opportunities. It's obvious, but with design, it's like, don't you run out of ideas at some point? <laughs> No, <laughs> no I, I couldn't possibly make everything I've ever thought of making, I think. And it's constantly evolving in terms of my approach and thought process, uh, because it's at a certain time, I'll feel like, okay, uh, I look at a lot of stuff online. I, I, I look at people I do. Th- I, I try to keep ahead of a trend. If, if I see something going on, a shift, I try to keep ahead of that. And it's, it's not easy. It's a lot of research, but most of what a lot of my um, education in terms of that is just knowing your history. So I have tons of books. I'll um, constantly, if there's somebody who's doing a, a class on a period of jewelry, I'll, I'll pop in online uh, mm-hmm. and do that. I'll, I'm constantly reading and researching and trying to figure out ways to take some classical piece of jewelry and update it sometimes it's it's just a matter of of blending cultural items you know like these symbols uh and coming up with something that it's it seems to me that's one of the only ways to to generate something that's actually feels new and fresh is to uh because there's so you know when you uh when you look at certain things that have been made uh when they're executed well you can keep doing that same thing. I mean, there's there's beautiful jewelry that you look at and you're like, oh, that looks like something I've seen a thousand times. But oh my god, look at that stone and look at that craftsmanship and yeah, uh, it's a really a different feel. But but getting something that feels fresh is hard. And sometimes sometimes it's uh, there was there was recently I did a um, I did a ring. Um, it was a, it's a Raven ring. I didn't do it. I did it for ZBrush Jewelry Workshop. All I did to really change the look was I had seen so many animal pieces like that. And the positioning of the the bird's face is always straight down the finger. And you look and look and you're like, what the hell? Uh, so the piece that I did, it, it curves over and, and sits in a unique way. Uh, and to me, it looks really cool. And so far, it's sold. Actually, it was 
it was gifted to um, Richie Ramone from the Ramones, uh, which was pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a feather for your hat right there. Yeah. What's the what's the um, most wild, just outrageous piece that you've ever been a part of? Can you think of a... I'm sure there's a lot, but... Yeah, let's see. The wildest piece. So there's some strange things I've had. Like I had somebody come in and bring what was... I was told it was a certified piece from the cross of the crucifixion verified by the Vatican. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. And it came in this little tin cross that, you know, shaped container with a little plastic lid and some kind of... And I was like, oh. And the, the woman had worked closely with the Vatican and she would... That was gifted to her. I don't know whether how true this is, but... They asked me to make a a little reliquary so I could drop. So I made a cross shape that was out of silver and we would drop this tin in plastic and she would take it to churches and people would come and, and pray for a miracle. Uh, wow. So that was, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. I've worked on a variety of things for different stars and things. Early on, I had a, this one gallery I worked, did work with. They would always say, the weirder you can make it, the better. And I was like, oh, okay. I can awesome. do weird. <laughs> it's like, yay. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. I had uh, my my first gallery show, and I made this pin that was probably about probably about four inches long, and it was it was silver in the shape of a woman, but she had no it was sort of Venus de Milo, no arms, no legs. And mm-hmm. then I had given her this sort of wild wire hair and uh, a couple of of uh, breasts that were different shaped, black onyx. And then I had, down in the pubic area, I had cast these giant plastic ants, and they had them crawling around her belly and around her groin. Right. we're getting and weird I thought, now. I thought, yeah, <laughs> that, that's weird. Uh-huh. And, and, I, and it, was in the, it was in the show, and a woman bought it. It was, it was probably... Eight hundred, a thousand dollars, and I was like, I can't believe somebody's paying eight hundred thousand dollars for this piece. Uh-huh. And she said to me, she's like, "I'm a lawyer, and I am going to wear this to court, and it is going to intimidate the hell out of the other lawyers." Oh my goodness! That she that's was hilarious. going against, and I thought, "Oh, okay, that's cool." Oh my goodness! <laughs> There's a whole line right there, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> lawyers intimidating the other lawyers. Wow, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And I've, yeah, I've worked on. I had a feeling you'd pull out something pretty well <laughs> with that question. <laughs> How did I know? <laughs> yeah. And that's just two of them. Yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. I could go on. Uh-huh. I bet. That's a whole episode right there. Yeah. Um, so back to William Henry, I, I, he's doing, with, with, within the line, there's the um, Damascus steel, um, leather goods. It's not just jewelry. It's kitchen knives. It's. Talk to me about how that expanded, how that kind of grew. So um, when they started off, they were knives. Uh, they had done kitchen knives years ago, uh, and that was, they were really cool, super expensive to produce, super expensive to uh, for sale, and they were, uh, and we lost money uh, doing those. That was before my time. Uh, and then slowly the transition to the other categories they had um started making pens and money clips. 
and then jewelry was sort of the the next thing and then from jewelry um we got into another one of my skills that i developed over the year i can make handbags and leather goods and i have a whole leather studio that i can that uh, i make stuff so i'll be right uh, over it sounds fun so uh <clears throat> We designed, we wanted to get into leather goods, so um, we sat down and worked with a manufacturer that uh, out of Florida that actually can produce volume, and they do it for a variety of high-end leather. We did the design, and where we wanted to differentiate was, uh, to make it unique, uh, I designed zipper poles uh, that uh, we incorporate our unique materials. So we have we have dinosaur bone, mokume, um, meteorite, Damascus, uh, and some gemstone materials. So, and then people can select what zipper pull they want on their piece. And that gives them, uh, it's crazy that that's been sort of the foundational thing with the knives. And that's been consistent is using these fossil materials, using mammoth tooth and dinosaur bone. Um, and that's, that's guided some of our, um, design and we know, we know that that's become the sort of the DNA, you know, mm. uh, you know, we come from the knife and the sword and Damascus and, uh, but then those materials are a strong, um, component of what makes us uh, desirable as a brand. So we incorporate that, um, whenever we can. And it's not a huge team that you have, right? You have a, tell, tell us about what it's like in the studio. How many orders are you guys handling and, how many staff members, et cetera? Well, so there are probably in the whole company, there's probably 40 people. Um, the, the knife division is, uh, there's, there's two buildings. There's knives, pens, money clips is on one side. And then I have a building of that's probably 2,200 square feet. I have five people currently who work for me. Um, and they are on just jewelry. The, the other projects and things are are throughout the the rest of the people on the other side of the business. They've all worked for me now. Um, some the almost the entire time I've I've handpicked a few that I plucked from the knife side, and then mm-hmm. um, the rest I've I have a a rule with for me anybody who's hired and brought in everybody has to approve. I don't let, I don't make it my decision. I assess their skills. But then I, I I let my my team assess their ability to assimilate into the, with the team. Uh, I it's a lively bunch. Um, and I have a lot of fun. Uh, it's really it's really like a a family environment. We we do each other's weddings and births and everything else. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a close knit group. Uh, they work hard, and um, uh, I feel very lucky to. To have a team that uh, that I can count on, uh, I could ask them just about anything. Probably even there's probably a couple of them that would even bury a body for me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Well, that's that's important. Yeah. So you feel like you can just kind of walk away when you need to and and do your things, and they will take care of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from my day to day, I. I don't have to. These are these are people who self-manage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, a shop manager in terms of 
dispersion of, of work and I can just, they know what they need to do and they do it. And there's, they're always overachieving in my mind. Uh, and I, and I fight for them to get, uh, if they're doing well, I fight for them to get good raises and keep them happy. And, uh, and I think that's important. The, the trust we have is, is important. Uh, the, if we didn't have that, uh, I think they would have all quit a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, there are, there are higher paying jobs out there than what we do, but uh, it's hard to walk away from something where you're really happy and comfortable with uh, the people you work with and the family. Yeah. Yeah. So. And so that's nice to hear that you're running things like that, Tony. Who was the strongest influence for you in your life? In my life? It, it could that's, be more than one. Um, in my life overall, it was easily my parents. I'm the youngest of four, but my siblings were the next um, oldest. There was a gap of almost five years. So I'm kind of like the the youngest and the only in some ways. Uh, and my parents instilled in me um, that I could do anything uh, and be successful in that and were and had zero expectations or didn't push me towards anything. And I think that's um, when I see so many people are intimidated by what they have, what they're trying to accomplish and the fear of failure. I never had fear of failure. I went, you know, I, I think that's helped me tremendously with, with design and, and just every job in that, that didn't turn out right. Can I do something with it? Is it garbage? Is it, you know, whatever it's, uh, the, the, the detachment from expectations, not everything we do is good. Most things that are bad or broken, you can learn something from. So, um, it's, it's good to, to not be encumbered by, uh, feeling, uh, that you're, you know, I know people whose parents look at them and just think they're failures because they decided to make jewelry or mm. make art, you know, Oh, I was hoping, you know, it's, Shame it's sad. On those parents. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, my, my mom being a ceramic artist, I was lucky I had, it's funny. I think back, you know, she also knitted and crocheted and, and, and I, I was thinking about, you know, there's times when my, she'd be like, Oh, can you untangle this? And I would sit there and my obsessive compulsive side would sit there and, and I developed all these, you know, fine motor skills by doing all these things like that over the years. Uh, somebody would get their chains tangled. I remember at Nordstrom, they used to, they would have this, there was this giant ball of chains and the manager would pay a, the salesperson to untangle them as in the fashion jewelry part. And if I got a hold of that, I I was like, I can't stop. I've got to oh untangle goodness. all of these. Yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely a natural born jeweler. <laughs> but um, no, yeah. my my parents, my dad, um, he was always on the weekends. He was always building something, doing something, whether it was uh, making a lamp or or doing a, a a project around the house, and and just I learned by watching, and I found that. You know, when I got older and I would do something, I'd be like, people like, how did you, how do you know how to do that? I'm like, I saw my dad do it. I just picked it up. And, and my mom always had us, you know, doing creative things. So 
sort of that, I think that's how I got to be sort of that engineering and artistic side blending from the, from the two of them. As I got into jewelry, I, the first teacher at this junior college that I took for, you know, my first jewelry experience, uh, his name was Willard Smith. And Willard was, he just had this enthusiasm. He, he didn't, he made crazy stuff and he didn't really understand most of the processes and couldn't explain them. Uh, he would do a demo and it would always fail. There was a entertainer in Chicago called Ray Rayner and he had he had Chauncey who was his stage manager would do the beautiful project and then he would do the project live and it would be this glue covered disaster and and uh, I think that was one of those things where seeing that you went the lesson was it's not going to be perfect but then Willard reminded always reminded me of Ray Rayner and I was like and he would no matter what you did he'd be like Everybody, come look, you know. Right. He's, he soldered a pin back on. <laughs> everything was a big deal. Yeah, everything was a big deal. And it was, it just, it created such a, an amazing environment uh, mm. for the people who were there. And I just, I just fed off of that. Uh, mm. It just was, it was great fun. Um, Excitement, energy. Yeah. 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 And then. And then Exploration. Yeah. Yeah. And then jewelry wise from there, um, my, at my first job, it was Jamie Fitzpatrick, who was the, he had an art major and, and gotten to be into, uh, a goldsmith and metalsmith and stone setter and designer for, it was Fay and company jewelers in Chicago and where I, where I worked and Jamie, he had that same combination of artistic and engineering when when he would get a mounting in the way he taught himself, he would tear it apart, figure out how it was set. He taught himself stone setting by tearing apart stuff and seeing how, how it was cut and the seat was cut and everything else. And then he'd rebuild it. And I always thought he was nuts for doing that. (laughs) Right. But, um, but he, he taught me, you know, he gave so much of his time and energy to, to me to guide uh, and take, and we had a great, so much fun. I had having fun shop experiences is in itself the the great influence. Um, you know, there were in that shop there were three of us and we were we were all about seven or eight years apart. I was the middle, uh, and we all, even though they we had different ages and um, viewpoints, uh, we came together and we just it was work and laughter. The you know. And, and it was just, I always wanted to uh, make sure that if, you know, if I ever got in the situation where I was in charge, that I would, I would educate, we'd work hard and we'd laugh our asses off. Um, and <laughs> very important. So with that now, you know, trying to be, um, influence on, on my employees, I try to get involved in training. I've got, I've got, um, young guy Rob who works for me who has now been with me six years we with the Santa Fe Symposium I was able to sponsor him so he got to attend that a couple of years ago before COVID and now his job every day is a lot of times it's the same things and he's he wants to do and grow and learn so we started doing Alan Revere's book 
uh, that there's also a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've been going through the projects. He's he's just coming up on, pro- I think he's on project 15 now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been so much fun for me to, to help guide him and, uh, you know, give him some tips and just yeah. cut him loose. And, and that's exciting. And so, so that's something where I feel really strong, you know, paying it back. I, I always felt like I had um, great influences and, and uh, hopefully I can continue doing that. I love your approach to like, you just seem like a real open book type person, um, willing to oh, share, yeah. teach, you know, um, openly, which, you know, in the past hasn't always been the case with everyone. But It was horrible when I first started. That's why, you know, Willard was a great, because he didn't know a tremendous amount of stuff, but he'd try to find you access to things. Uh, as a, a funny aside, he, he, um, I wanted to start setting some stones and I had, I had a cast a gold ring and I wanted to set a sapphire in the side. It was unconventional at the time. And he's like, Oh, well you can, you can do, uh, you know, that with beads and an engraver. And he's like, I think we have some gravers. And he handed me a graver that unknown to me was a raw on, you know, it had not been sharpened or, or change the shape or, and, um, and I took it and I looked at, to find whatever I could on setting, which was almost nothing. I just, I knew I had to get a bead up and then, and then use a tool to turn it into round. So here I am, I'm, I'm standing over this, this work table and I am bearing down and using this raw graver. And it's amazing. I didn't, like yeah, I was myself. gonna say this is gonna, not gonna end well. <laughs> and it was, and the people are, people are, what is he doing? He's setting a stone. It was like this. They all came to watch, and I got four beads over it, and you know the gold moved. It took like seemingly forever, but I got this little three millimeter sapphire set in the side of this stone and this ring, uh, and then later on learned that you were supposed to do other things. <laughs> Like sharpening yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, like you I, said, that's dive in, you know. Yeah, I've always, um, I've always just sort of dive into things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, and sometimes it works well. So, um, I love doing, I love doing reticulation, you know, mm-hmm. and there was people had formalized things. And one time I had a particular solder pad and I was like, oh, that doesn't look very good. But then I flipped it over and realized that if I had what I had done, I got the best reticulation, but it was on the underside instead of what I was expecting. And uh, uh-huh. so sometimes, you know, just diving into to new things, you get these pleasant surprises. Yeah, I love that. And it stems from that no fear kind of approach, you know, that your parents instilled in you from early on. So it's yeah. like... Just try it, and nothing's really a failure. It's all just part of the journey or part of the process of learning. I I look back, my my poor mother. It was no wonder she was a little a little goofy in the you know from from my behavior. I remember as a kid, I was I was hyperactive, uh, had a little OCD, uh, and then later on, I I do have, also have sort sort of a 
it's not a traditional dyslexia, but I have a form of dyslexia too, which a lot of, uh, interesting enough, cat artists do. But the, the hyperactive side, they it was before Ritalin and things like that. So they tried to medicate me with uh, downers to suppress my energy, which only acted in the opposite and made me oh, no. more of a nut job. Uh, hyper energized. I was like the energizer bunny on steroids. Uh, <laughs> oh no! Okay. Uh, oh no! Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, so that was. Uh, this is common with artists too. I don't think it's just you know. Oh no! It's, with yeah. cat designers, it seems to come up a lot in these conversations. Oh yeah, it's definitely. I only say cat designer because there was a, we were at a symposium and somebody said, "Damn my dyslexia," and then. There were like 30 people there and they all rose their hands and said they were all, it was like, oh, yeah. Very common. Very yeah. Common. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the hyperactivity part was, uh, it kind of went into that, you know, where my mom would support just about anything, you know, if it, if she thought it was going to wear me out or, or, uh, just cut me free, you know, to, to do it, you know. I used Focus to be cl- focused. I used to, yeah. Cl- yeah, whether which whichever direction it took, she just never inhibited me. It was, you know, so we, you know, um, she would go and take me to garage sales and thrift stores. Uh, and I kind of forgot about this. Uh, I used to love wind up manual watches and that you used to be able to get them in thrift stores and things for, you know, 50 cents or or a dollar for uh, overwound mechanism. And I would open them up and I had figured out how to make them. So when you wound it, it just spun around really fast until it unwound. Uh, and I would sell those to my friends at school. You just remembered that? <laughs> I kind of forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so this was pre eighties, you know, oh, this is... binder earring, punk jewelry. This oh no, was this was, school. <laughs> this was, uh, this would have been 19, Let's see, uh, probably 1970 or so. Yeah, yeah. Late 60s, yeah. early 70s. Pretty interesting, isn't that? Oh, how, how funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Tony, this is so fascinating. I know we could go on and on. I, want, I have one big last question for you. Sure. Um, if you were to write a commencement speech, what would the main heart of it be? Um, okay. It would be about asking, I think. Um, I have found that so many people limit themselves because they'll have an idea or a thing they want to do and they'll hang on to it and they won't put it out into the world. Uh, and I have found continuously that there are so many people who respond to just ask, uh, you know, when I was traveling around the country, uh, somebody would say something and I'd be like, Oh, how'd you feel about me coming to visit? And they're like, Oh, great. I have a guest room and you can stay. And you know, it's, there were so many situations when I started doing jewelry where people uh, were so closed and they didn't, they, they made it so you didn't feel comfortable to ask. So you didn't, uh, with the internet and the way things are, uh, really when I saw people start opening up is when they realized, Oh, you're in Chicago and I'm in Los Angeles. You're not a competition. I'll talk to you more and more as people intersected and, uh, they realize that there's mutual benefits uh, to being a little more open. So that's gotten better. But I found that different jobs, different scenarios, different things 
just being confident enough to say, uh, can you help me? Can, can I learn what you, you know, can you, uh, whatever it is, just ask the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to say no, you know, uh, but they also might say no, but I know somebody who will, you know, which is often one of the things that comes from that. So I love that. I actually have a song about, I'm going to send it to you later. (laughs) It's like verbatim what you just said. Um, well, and if you don't ask for what you want, you're not going to get it. Like it just doesn't, things don't just happen. So I think that there's a lot to that. Just show up and worst they can say is no. Yeah. There's a lot of people who, um, you know, you, you get things where they want to, well, the universe is against me or, uh, Mm. I'm going to reach out to the universe and it's okay whatever your belief system is, but if you want something, yes, you can, you can create a board on the wall where, you know, your dream board, or you can have something you wish and want, but until you take some action, you know, and asking is often the most simple action to take, uh, and can get the ball rolling, get those dominoes falling over and, but take action, ask. And believe in your, you know, believe you can do it and be willing to, to fail a couple of times or whatever we want to hate that word. I do not like that word. We need to replace it with. Yeah. I think it's like a discovery. It's more of a, an exploration. Well, I I think too, people need to detach a little bit. You're, you're, if, if you're good at your work, you know, you've made something you're proud of, you should be able to do it again. If you're only enamored with this thing, why are you enamored with it? Why are you hanging on to that? Is it because you have a fear you can't do it again? Well, you need to try to do it again. And uh, I often like, so Rob in, in um, doing the Revere stuff, he was mm-hmm. just doing the, and I told him he was making a four prong basket head and it looked a little wonky. And I gave him some pointers afterwards, but I'm like, I'm glad you didn't do this the way to the level that you wanted to. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, I thought it might be, harder, you know, once I read through it and I said, yeah, if you do this perfectly the first time, that's only going to frustrate you. You're going to be much better off screwing it up or whatever you want to do failing. It's not a failure. It's a, it's a learning experience. Mm -hmm. It's something to go, okay, here's what I did that didn't work. How do I adjust? How do I, what do I do to make this work? And, and that's where I would come in with him is going and giving him the guidance and some tricks uh, to to help alleviate the pain that some of the stuff I went through trying to get through that, you know. Oh, it's so nice when you can just knock off that 10 years learning curve for people. You know, it's like there's one little thing that it didn't click for me for a good eight to 10 years. And here you go. I just want yeah. to gift it, you know. Let's, why not? You know, it's more exciting to be successful together, I think, and collaborate as much as we can. And I think, you know, when you're, when you have the sort of the solitary side of design and fabricating and doing things uh, to interact with other people, just for me, it's, it's what energizes me tremendously to be more creative uh, and to follow through on things uh, to, to finish up on projects I've been working on. It's, it's, it's that little boost, you know, that, Oh, uh, and often it's that, that collaborative process, which will push something to the next level, uh, that you've been, you've been struggling with trying to figure out how to make it. It just doesn't look right. 
I, one of the things I do with everything that I design. So I have to, I have to do all the, I do all the prototyping. So my process is concept, CAD, prototype, and then, you know, master models and then push to production. So, but all through that stage, uh, I will ask everyone I work with their thoughts and I trust their opinions. They'll be like, you know, they'll wince and go, I don't know if I like that or, you know, uh, but then they also have learned enough to apply what their views are, but then what they think our customers might respond to too. So, uh, but if I just based it only on my view, it would be a much different product. Uh, mm. It's I think it's important to be um, open to that. Uh, mm-hmm. The the you have to select the right people though, and who you open that to, because often you can get um, you can get designed by committee, and uh, that just is bad design. Mm. What you do you know? mean? So where you get people who are uh, you know, like um, inter- they're interjecting their opinions, their personal opinion. They're not looking at it objectively to like what's best for our customer, right. what's best for our brand, uh, what what looks and will work uh, aesthetically towards those goals. They're like, well, I don't like it. You know, well, it doesn't yeah. matter what you, you know. Right. Uh, it's about we, our audience. Mm-hmm. It's the audience is always interesting. When when I started uh, doing, I would do these sales, uh, student sales when we started off, and there were a group of us, and we would make a bet on uh, who could make the ugliest piece of jewelry, <laughs> and include that with all of your other work. And the funny thing was, uh, every time we did it, that was the first piece we all sold. What every oh, time it was hysterical. It's, it's like you're trying to. We were trying make... to. We were trying oh to. Goodness. Yeah, that's and, hilarious. Yeah. We should bring that back to life, Tony. That would be a fun. I think it's a good. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be a fun win. Well, oh my gosh, like I said, you guys, Tony and I could probably talk to you guys all day. Um, yep. But uh, we will sign off for now. And um, Tony, thank you for sharing um, your journey and your history and the happy accidents along the way and um, all the inspiration that you have to share. Uh, anything else you'd like to share with the community before we say goodbye? Um, I would like to thank you for allowing me to um, share some of my life. And, and like you said, I am an, I am an open book. I am open to, you know, people reaching out and um, asking questions. I've always been, um, that way I feel like uh I feel like I owe the the community for the the gifts that I've received uh so I'm always there awesome what a gift that's amazing yeah you guys like Tony said to ask for what you want you know that's the first step to to getting towards your goals and uh worst worst they can say is no or not right now or look over there (laughs) but we're all here to direct each other and and to you know just level that playing field a little bit so i love tony i love what you stand for in that way and um can't wait to see you in person soon and uh, thanks again for your time today thanks for tuning in you guys i hope you have enjoyed this episode of for the love of jewelers 
Stay tuned for the next episode by subscribing through Spotify, iTunes, or by searching podcast at riograndecom I encourage you to rate us, write a review, and share with friends and colleagues. I hope you're all finding ways to stay inspired. I'm your host, Courtney Gray. Until we get to connect again, onward and upward.